The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Well, do please uh, keep your Bibles in hand as uh, we continue to uh, study Paul's letter to the Romans. We're engaged in a a January overview. We're sort of racing through uh, the book of Romans, which means we're covering lots of material. Let me encourage you as you come each Lord's Day and on Wednesday evenings Uh, to try, if you can, to read uh, the chapters that we'll be considering together before you come so that you can be prepared uh, to engage with the teaching of the letter. Today, we are thinking about Romans chapters 5 through 7. You'll remember that chapters 1 through 3 are about the bad news, our sin, and our need for the righteousness of Christ. Then chapters 3 and 4 are about the good news, God's provision of the righteousness of Christ for us in the gospel to be received by faith alone. And now in our passage today, chapters 5 through 7, Paul begins to tease out the implications of that good news. Really, chapter 5 through 8 are about the implications of the good news. We'll come back and look at chapter 8 tonight. Chapters 5 through 7, the implications. God gives peace, chapter 5, purity, chapter 6, and part of chapter 7, although constant conflict remains, and that's at the end of chapter 7. So, peace, purity, and constant conflict. That's a very simple outline of the chapters now before us. And before we look at each of those themes in turn, let's pray once more and ask for God to help us as we read His holy word. Let us pray. O God, would You now come and by Your Spirit open our eyes that we may indeed behold marvelous things out of Your law, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to read some selections from these three chapters, beginning with chapter 5 at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Then turn to chapter 6 at verse 1. chapter 6, verse 1, and what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then chapter 7 at verse 13. Chapter 7 at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. I was uh, reading recently about the end of the Second World War when the United States military was reduced from 12 million service personnel in 1945 to 1.5 million by 1947. Now, can you imagine the difficulties for the jobs market, for the economy, for the country of the sudden influx of that many former servicemen and women pouring back into the civilian population all at once? Measures like the GI Bill helped provide economic and educational opportunities, to be sure, but the transition back into peacetime was not easy. The war was over, the enemy was defeated, peace was secured, but adjusting to life in peacetime was not quite as straightforward as might at first have been imagined, not for the returning soldiers, not for their families, not for the country. In Romans 5, 1 through 11, the first part of the passage we read together, Paul is addressing a very similar issue. Notice what he says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith, that's been the burden of chapter, chapters 3 and 4. God declares us righteous. He justifies us on the basis, not of anything we've done, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ credited to our account and received by faith alone. And now he says, since we have been thus justified, declared righteous by faith, we now no longer live in a state of war. We live now in peacetime. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, to be clear, the peace 
Paul has in mind in verse 1 isn't subjective. Paul isn't saying, since we've been justified by faith, we feel peaceful in our hearts, in our consciences. We have, a, we have peace from God. That's a truth, no doubt. Being justified by faith can and should generate a deep sense of peace within us. That's just not what Paul means here. Here he's talking about the objective condition and state of being at peace with God, who was once our enemy. Paul made that point, God is our enemy, very clear, didn't he? Back in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God, he said, has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. By nature, God is not our friend. We are naturally His enemies. When Adam sinned, humanity declared war against the rule of God. But now for believers in Jesus, the war is over. God has made peace by the death of His Son. We are reconciled to Him. No longer are we His enemies, now we are His friends. This is now peacetime. If you're a Christian, you live in peacetime. But peacetime living, Paul knows, takes some getting used to. Peacetime living takes some getting used to. And to help us live in this new condition of peace with God, Paul outlines the principal blessings that are ours. First of all, in verse 2, look at verse 2. He says, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is the new world in which we live. We stand in it. It is our settled environment and condition, our new habitat. We live in a world of grace. It is the realm or sphere into which God has now brought us, now that He has established peace between us. So, we have access by faith into grace. Secondly, he says there is joy. It's actually this note of joy that is particularly dominant in these opening verses of chapter 5. Paul mentions it here. He mentions it again in verse 3 and again in verse 11. Do you see that? So, rejoicing sort of brackets this whole first section of Romans chapter 5. The Greek word translated, we rejoice, actually means something like to exult in, to glory in, to boast in, to revel in. And so, here in verse 2, Paul says, now that we're at peace with God, we revel, first of all, in a bright, unshakable future hope. You see that in verse 2? We rejoice, he says, in hope of the glory of God. One day when history reaches its end, God's own glory will open to our view and enfold us and remake us and all things along with us so that we will reflect God's own glory back to its divine source in an unceasing fellowship and communion of glory forever. That's the Christian hope. And Paul says that hope, the, the thought of it, the promise and assurance of it, makes us rejoice. We have peace with God as a result of our justification in the past. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand now in the present, and we rejoice in the hope of glory yet to come in the future. Our whole lives, you see, past, present, and future are bounded and hemmed in by this glorious salvation that God has secured for us 
in Jesus Christ. It sounds idyllic, writes John Stott, except for Paul's next affirmation. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice, there's that key word again, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, let's be honest, isn't that weird? We rejoice in our sufferings. The hope of glory we get, rejoice in that. That that makes perfect sense. But who rejoices in suffering? What's Paul talking about? Well, he doesn't mean that he's glad he's suffering or that suffering itself is anything other than miserable and painful and unwelcome. If all he'd said in verse 3 is, we rejoice in suffering, we would be right to dismiss Paul's religion as monstrous and twisted and perverse. Suffering is never in itself a good thing. It is an evil, and it is to be prayed for deliverance from and opposed and mitigated and avoided. But that's not what Paul says. What he says is we rejoice in our suffering knowing. So it is the knowing something about suffering that is the generator of joy in the midst of it all. What is it that he knows about his suffering that makes him rejoice? Look at the text. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces. We could stop right there and have plenty of fuel for joy. Here's something to cling to in the midst of suffering, isn't it? The promise of God that my suffering, even when I can't see how it can be so, my suffering produces, it is productive in the purposes of God. But productive of what? God is working, He says, by our sufferings to train and strengthen the muscles of endurance and character and hope. See that language in verses 4 and 5? Suffering, we might say, is God's surgical scalpel wounding and cutting us in order ultimately to heal and mend us. Suffering is scissors in the hand of God by which He cuts the strings that tie us to this life and its values and priorities. Suffering is God's pruning shears by which He cuts away the barren branches and trains the vine of our lives so that we bear much fruit. Knowing that, knowing it, even if we can't always see how it is so, but knowing it, clinging to it, preaching it to our own hearts, Paul says, helps us rejoice even in suffering while we hope for glory. Well, okay, how do we know this hope of which suffering is ultimately productive is not in the end misplaced. How do we know, asked Christopher Ashe, that the experience of hope that keeps us going under pressure is not wishful thinking, make-believe, the kind of thing that undertakers offer the bereaved with fanciful poems about the afterlife? How do we know hope does not put us to shame? How do we know that it will not prove illusory at the last? You'll notice that Paul offers a subjective and an objective assurance that our hope is well-founded. Subjectively, he says in verse 5, look at verse 5, the love of God has been poured into, <clears throat> has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is at work to give us the sense and awareness that we are beloved by God. And he says, objectively, verses 6 through 8, the love of God has been demonstrated, 
proven beyond all argument and all doubt in this, while we were sinners, unworthy, unlovely, unlovable, God loved us, and His Son, on the errand of the Father's love, came and died for us to reconcile us to Him. Now, think about what we're being told. The love of God the Father poured in abundance into our hearts by God the Holy Spirit is a love proven, demonstrated at the cross of God's own dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The love of the blessed Trinity do you see this? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit fixed upon us in eternity, securing salvation for us at the cross in history, filling us in our own experience today. That is the ground, Paul says, of our sure and certain hope. The love of the triune God that can never be shaken. Not even the final judgment, verses 9 through 11, can change all that. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. And before we move on, do notice the second half of chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, sort of backs up and takes one last look at justification by faith. These verses serve as something of a conclusion to this whole part of Paul's discussion. It is, if you like, the theological cherry on the Gospel Sunday from chapters 1 uh, through four. And I really wish we had the time to unpack them in detail. Let me just summarize the big point in verses 12 through 21. Paul points out, do you notice this, the parallel between Adam and Christ. Adam was not a private individual. He was a public person, acting not only for himself, but representing all his people. Now, I'll grant that might seem like a difficult, even abstract idea at first glance, but I think we still have an instinctive grasp of it. I was preaching at the Christian Medical and Dental Association on Tuesday past, and our own doctor, David Snyder, who helps lead the group, was there proudly wearing his Michigan sweater in celebration of their recent national championship win the night before. And Dr. Snyder said with a chuckle he'd been waiting 20 years to wear it, it had been that long since we won, he said. Now, I'll admit I don't know much about college football, and this is no slight on Dr. Snyder, I'm sure, but I don't think he was playing that night. But we won, he said. He identifies with his team. His team was Michigan, Michigan won, so we won. Their win was his win. Similarly, Paul says, we are identified with Adam. Adam sinned, so we sinned in Adam. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Our problem isn't just that we sin in imitation of Adam, that we sin in the same way that Adam sins. Our problem is much worse than that. When Adam sinned, his sin was reckoned to be our sin so that we are guilty as a race descending from Him. We're guilty from the start, guilty by nature, before we're guilty by our own actions or failures to act. But Paul says now, Christ has come. He's come to be the head of a new humanity. He is a second Adam, where the first Adam disobeyed, and plunged all his people into sin, now Christ has obeyed. 
And by his righteousness, all his people are accepted and counted righteous before God. Verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made or constituted sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So it turns out we are saved by works after all. Did you know that? You were saved by works. Not your works, but Christ's works. You were saved by obedience, not your obedience, but Christ's obedience for you. That is the heart of the gospel. And so Paul says with joy in verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God is a match for all your sin. More than a match for all your sin in the gift of His Son. That's the good news. Get out of Adam. Get into Christ. That's where you will find hope for acceptance with God. That is the hope of the gospel. But you'll notice that it's at this point Paul begins to anticipate a string of potential objections to his preaching. Actually, answering those objections allows Paul to move on from justification to sanctification, from being counted legally righteous with the righteousness of Christ to being made personally holy in the likeness of Christ, from what God has done for us to what God is doing in us. He moves from peace in chapter 5 to purity in chapter 6. Paul knows that his religion of grace makes legalists nervous. And so he anticipates their objections in chapter 6 and 7 in a series of four rhetorical questions. You'll see them in chapter 6, verse 1, in chapter 6, verse 15, in chapter 7, verse 7, and in chapter 7, verse 3 four rhetorical objections. Each objection follows the same pattern, essentially stated as a question to which in each case he replies in Greek, meganoito, uh, by no means. That's actually an awfully weak translation. John Murray says the phrase indicates the recoil of abhorrence. Paul shudders at the thought suggested by their accusations. It is the recoil of abhorrence. He's appalled at what they're implying about his gospel. The first two accusations are essentially the same. In chapter 6, 1, Paul asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And in chapter 6, verse 15, if you'd look there, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? So, you see the concern of the legalists who, opposes, who oppose Paul's preaching. They worry that Paul's free grace theology, his insistence that God accepts us freely without any works of the law on our own part, they worry that it means we can sin all we please. They hear, for example, the words of chapter 5, verse 20 we read a moment ago, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. They hear those words as a license to sin willy-nilly. The more sin, the more grace. You're saying, Paul, if we want more grace, we should sin more. Your theology incites us to sin, Paul. That was their accusation. All this free grace stuff leads to lawlessness. That's what they were saying. Now, I like Martin Lloyd-Jones' famous words about these verses, don't you? Do you remember them? Quote, the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone 
always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it, Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones says. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. So, as you've listened to Paul insisting that there is no message, there is no contribution you can make to your own acceptance before God, if you find yourself worried this message of unqualified grace will give license to sin, if salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's obedience and blood alone, without regard to any work of yours, whatever, makes you nervous? If free grace raises red flags in your heart, well then, like the doctor delivering a necessary but unhappy diagnosis, Paul wants you to know you have been infected by the corrosive poison of legalism. You do not yet understand the nature of grace as you should. Though thankfully, he writes in chapter 6 and 7 to provide the antidote. Look at chapter 6, 1 through 14, first of all. The question, remember, is does Paul's doctrine of salvation by grace alone give a license to sin? Look at his answer beginning in verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you, know, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christian baptism is the great sign of union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's what baptism means. It means union with Christ who died and rose again. So, he says, you were baptized, you Roman Christians. Your baptism declares that you're united to Christ in His death and resurrection, and so now you ought to live as those for whom that's true. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's what your baptism means, remember. It's what it declares to be true of you. You're united to Christ. You better live that way. The great Bible commentator Matthew Henry talks about his Puritan father, Philip, dealing with him and his siblings while they were young. Some parents take hold of their wayward children by the scruff of their necks or by their ears or maybe better by their consciences. But Henry says, quote, in dealing with his children about their spiritual state, his father took hold of them very much by the handle of their baptism. He took hold of them by the handle of their baptism. You have been baptized, he would say to them. Your baptism says you're united to Christ. You'd better be what your baptism says you are and live the new life that Christ gives you. That's what Paul is doing here, isn't it? in Romans chapter 6. He's taking hold of us by the handle of our baptisms and reminding us that if we are Christians trusting in Jesus, we're united to Christ. So, we'd better live, live like those who've been given resurrection life in union with Jesus. When you became a Christian, you died to the old life. You were given a new life. If anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. A decisive change has taken place when you became a Christian. The old life of sin is gone, and new life in Christ has come. Sin is no longer in charge. It no longer has the mastery. And that means, verse 11, you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You're new creatures in Christ. Time to start living like it. The charge, remember, is that free grace leads to lawless living. But isn't it clear nothing could be further from the truth? If you're in Christ by free grace, you're already living a resurrection life. And how can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Sin isn't in charge anymore. You died to that old life. And so Paul says, stop living as if you had not. You rose to a new life. Start living the new life that Jesus gives you. Verses 13 through 23, the second half of chapter 6, essentially repeat the same arguments, only this time using a different image, the metaphor now of slavery and freedom. Sin enslaved you. Christ has set you free. If you're free from Christ, you're still a slave to sin. But if you're free from sin, you are now enslaved to Christ. Verse 17, thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness, free grace, the real thing, not the legalist nor the lawless counterfeits, but real free grace liberates us from sin and makes us happy, willing slaves of righteousness, obedient from the heart to the apostolic standard of teaching. Peace with God, do you see, always comes with growing personal piety and purity before God. Justification always, always comes with sanctification. Those who are united to Christ legally so that His obedience is counted as if it were ours in the tribunal of heaven are also united to Christ spiritually and personally so that the image of His life begins to emerge in our lives too. God changes everyone He forgives. He sanctifies those He justifies. He slowly eradicates the presence of the sin that He pardons. There are no Christians who have Jesus as Savior who do not also have Him as Lord. Holiness is not a second stage of the Christian life. It is the long, slow product of grace working in us from the very first moment we believe. You do not get to claim to be a Christian at all while living without any regard for holiness. Be holy, God says, as I am holy. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. But of course, the work of grace in bringing this purity, this holiness into our lives, it does not progress along a simple straight line of constant upward progress, does it? Of upward growth. If only that was the case. 
those of us who've been Christians for a while know that actually it's a bumpy ride trying to make progress in the Christian life and become holy and like Jesus. Yes, the Christian life is a life of peace with God. And yes, it's a life of real, growing, personal purity from God. But now Paul adds a necessary word of realism to all of that, doesn't he? It's also a life of constant inner conflict with the reality of remaining sin still festering in our hearts. Peace, purity, constant conflict. The legalists, remember, think Paul's theology of grace gives license for sin. They think Paul hates God's law. And their third and fourth accusations in verse 7 and verse 13 of chapter 7 make that point. And so, in the first half of the chapter, Paul shows us that the law actually exposes sin and condemns sin, not because the law is the problem, our sin is the problem. But then from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, I want you to notice that Paul suddenly speaks in the present tense about his own life right now as a mature Christian. The accusation is that Paul has no positive place for the law in his life. Paul thinks the law is bad. That's what his opponents were saying. But look at chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 7, verse 16. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. He loves God's law. Only now that he is a Christian, there's a struggle going on inside of him. And it may be that seeing that will be really reassuring for some of us. You look at your inner conflict with sin and you worry because you're struggling so much that you're somehow defective as a Christian. Surely, it should be easier. My Christian life should be serene. My sin should fall away, you know, like brown leaves on the branches in autumn. But not at all. That's not my experience, and that's not Paul's experience. Isn't that reassuring? No, he says the normal Christian life is war. The normal Christian life is war. Before he was converted, there was no struggle. Not really. He indulged his sin. He excused his sin. He minimized his sin. He justified his sin. You know, like the sign that says wet paint, what's the first thing you do? You stick your finger in it to see if it's wet after all. The law of God came along and said, you shall not covet. And what's the first thing he does? He gave in to all manner of covetousness, verses 7 through 9. That was his old life. But now he says in verses 18 and 19, my heart has changed. I have the desire to do what is right, though not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Or verse 21, I find it to be a law. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members a law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and, and death that dwells in my members. Right at the very beginning, do you remember we said, if you're a Christian, it's peacetime? It's peacetime, you live at peace with God? And to be sure, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're reconciled to Him. He's not your enemy and will never be your enemy ever again. You live at peace with God. But now that you're at peace with God, all His enemies become your enemies. When we were at war with God, we were at peace with our sin. We were at peace with ourselves. But now the opposite is true. 
Now there is what the Westminster Confession calls a continual and irreconcilable war raging in your heart. Not a war with God, but a war with ourselves, a war with our remaining sin, because now we want to do what God says. Now we love God's law, and we long to obey it. Our flesh, our remaining sin, wants the opposite, and so we're locked in a deadly struggle, a constant daily combat. And Paul wants you to understand, this is the normal Christian life. You're not defective to fight your sin, to feel the grief of sin's remaining presence in your heart, to, to feel frustration that you've not made more progress, that sin continues to thwart all your best designs for obedience, to hate it and rage against it and fight against it. That's the normal Christian life. It's a bumpy ride. You're not defective. This is what happens when God breaks into a sinner's heart and begins to renovate you from the inside out. Take heart, be comforted, and suit up for the battle. Every day, if you are a follower of Jesus, is wartime. It's wartime now that you're at peace with God. Peace, purity, and constant conflict. That's the Christian life. Do you recognize it in your heart? Or are you like Paul before he came to know Jesus, perfectly at peace with your remaining sin? May God show you the danger of your apathy and draw you to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your holy word, for the way that you have provided a comprehensive treatment plan for our sin, for our forgiveness in your courts to be declared righteous in Christ, for peace with you and for purity in our own hearts to change us till we look more like Christ. Help us, O Lord, not to be surprised at the ferocity of the inner battle in our hearts. And instead, would you give us grace to suit up for the fight, to be ready and resolved, to lock our jaws and to march into the fray, confident not in ourselves, but in our Savior who has triumphed over sin by His cross and resurrection. Hear our cries and have mercy on us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.